Oh, it is so good to be with you. It's good to be with you when I'm not on my last breath of exhaustion for the week and actually have brain power to think. And uh, If you didn't understand the sermon last week, get in line, okay? So every preacher is allowed every once in a while to maybe hit one off into the foul, foul, uh, foul territory, but... Um, I'm not going to say it was a bad sermon, but I could have thought out the delivery just a little bit better, all right? So, we're going to move on from that. Today, we have a great topic. I, I think you're going to love the Scripture today. I certainly do, and uh, love what God has done as I have spent some time talking about it. I was born in 1963. Now, for some of you, you're like, good grief, I have socks that are older than that. I get it, all right? But for some in here, it's like, holy cow, he was born in the middle of the 20th century. So 1963, uh, that's the year I've been told all my life I was a baby that, that uh, one of our presidents was assassinated. That's the year that things really started to heat up in this nation uh, in terms of civil rights and and uh, we lived through the, the 60s. I spent it in a children's home. Uh, in the 70s, I got to be a, a teenager. I got to learn how to drive, got to learn how to do all those things right in the middle of the 1970s. But what it means for me that I grew up in the 1960s and the 1970s as, as a child and a teenager, it meant that I got to witness America going through a time in our history that was absolutely amazing. It was absolutely amazing. It had not been that many years. If we go back and we think about the entire idea of equal rights, okay, equal rights. Now, this is going somewhere, all right? It was 1872 that... Susan B. Anthony dared to go into a voting place. Susan B. Anthony, we made a little silver dollar out of her, dared to go into a voting place and test whether or not they were going to treat her like our Constitution said they were going to treat her. All people are created equal. And so Susan B. Anthony, 1872, marched into a voting place and said... Do you mean it? And of course, that kicked off what we call women's liberation. Some people think that started in the, the you know, 1920s. 19... Susan B. Anthony, 10 years after a civil war, looked at the nation and said, Do you really mean what you said in this Constitution? And it took us decade after decade after decade, but by the time I came around in the 1960s, it wasn't even a question as to whether or not women could go into the voting booth. Now, were there things that were still questionable? Oh, it was in the 1960s that we were fighting whether or not women deserved equal pay for men. Anybody else live through that era remember that? Of course you do. It was in 1916 that we as a nation decided we needed to begin to act in relation to children. Because in 1916, 
25% of all of our children from the ages of 10 to 15 years of age were working in factories. In other words, we were using in this nation child labor. 25% of 10 to 15 year old children were working in factories. Teddy Roosevelt decided we had to take these things on. So we began to talk about these children. And these... These were the children who were the aftermath of the orphans of the Civil War. Because after the Civil War, we had so many orphans in the United States of America that we began to build orphanages. And so when a child didn't have a parent anymore or didn't have a father anymore or something had happened and they had lost all their land and parents couldn't afford the children anymore, the state created an orphanage. And so we had 1870s, 80s, and 90s children that were just one after the other on trains bound for the West, going into orphanages. By the turn of the century, the orphanages were closing. What are you going to do with all the kids? Put them to work. So we sent the kids into factories, 10 to 15 years of age. 1963, I was put into an orphanage in 1964. I was a year old. We were the orphanage children of World War II because all the parents that had their homes shattered by World War II and children that were going into orphanages, you know who opened those orphanages? It was the churches that opened those, or that opened those orphanages. But the same thing happened. The 1940s went by, the 1950s went by, the 1960s went by, and we were children caught in the institutional orphanages. By 1980, we didn't have orphanages anymore because the orphanages had become places of abuse. It's the same thing that happened at the turn of the century, 1890, 1900. The 1960s and 70s were where we, we came to grips with, did we really mean it 100 years ago? And if we did, why do we still have segregation? And if we did, why do we still have bathrooms for different races? And if we did, and we struggled and we wrestled with all of those issues. I lay that framework for you. Number one, because I have the energy to do it today. But number two, because I, I want you to understand the context in which I grew up reading the Word of God. I grew up reading this with a basic understanding of the way I thought life worked. And so I read these words as a very young person because they are in the New Testament. And when I was a very young Christian, I didn't pay a whole lot of attention to the Old Testament. That was a bunch of laws and a bunch of stories that had nothing to do with me. But Jesus, he had something to do with me. I could get my arms around Paul and his missionary journeys. And I read scripture like this 
uh, at this point, mid-1970s, okay? Those of you who lived through it, lock it into your brain. Those of you who didn't, you've heard the stories, okay? And yes, I wore tie-dye shirts as a teenager. I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. This is 1 Corinthians, the 11th chapter. If you want to follow along with me, if you brought your Bibles or you, you like to go to your devices. I want you to know, Paul, speaking to the Corinthian people. Now, we're talking about Romans. But let me tell you the way Paul says it in Romans. Uh, Do you not know, brethren, this is Romans 7. This is the one I, I would have been using as scripture. And you'd have been like, what? All right. Do you not know, brethren, that the law has dominion over man as long as he lives? The woman has a husband bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. If the husband dies, she's released from the law. Paul's talking about all these laws, okay? He, he's, no. Let's go to Corinthians where he actually gives them examples of what he's talking about in the book of Romans. I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of every woman is man. The head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. For that would be the same as if her head were shaved. For if a woman's not covered, let her also be shorn. Cut off all the hair. But it's shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved. So let her be covered, Paul says. For goodness sakes, women, put on a hat. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head since he is the image of the glory of God. <laughs> Men. But woman from man, not man from woman. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, Neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For as a woman came for man, even so, man also comes through woman. But all things are from God, Paul says. So judge among yourselves. The scripture in your connection. Now you can throw it up there. Judge among yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Well, I put it to you. Ladies. Well, guess we have to talk about that. 
But if a woman has long hair, wait, 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 does not, yeah, does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a dishonor to him? Whoa, now we are back in the 70s. <laughs> Anybody belong to a church that argued about whether the men in the church should be able to have long hair? That happened here in Santa Claus. Could men have long hair? Boy, it happened in Columbus. And that's what was preached. But if a woman has long hair, it's glory to her. For her hair is given to her for coming. What in the world? What's a 15-year-old supposed to do with that in Bible study? On a Sunday night, back in the days when in the Methodist church, we had Sunday night UMYF, United Methodist Youth Fellowship. Well, I can tell you. The context that I was given because of the age in which I grew up, we were obediently sat down and we were instructed, well, you know what this is talking about? It's talking about the hierarchy and the authority of marriage and so on and so forth. And, and so I learned the hierarchy of God. There is God, and then there is Christ, and then there is man, and then there is woman, and then there is children, and then there are the dogs. Top to bottom. Okay. So I was raised with these ideas that I was going to be, you know, ever got lucky enough to get married, I get to be the head of the household. Boy, Joy just blew all that out of the water, didn't she? <laughs> wow. As I began to study more and more about Scripture, I wish I could say the answers just popped right into my head. But let me tell you, the more and more I studied Scripture, the more and more confused I got. Because... What I was learning wasn't matching up with what I had always been taught. It was a workable system. Can I tell you that? It was absolutely a workable system that I was raised in. Well, of course, we know the authority. And when, you know, when push comes to shove, yeah, you know, let's talk about in our marriages, let's talk about in our families everything that's going to happen. But you know, when push comes to shove, Tim, step forward and make that decision. Can I tell you there were a lot of things that Tim had no business stepping forward and making decisions for? But boy, I did sometimes. The more I learned, the more confused I got. Let's talk about Rome for just a second. Paul is writing to Rome. He's writing to a Roman city uh, called Corinth, in, in the one that I wanted to use as an example. But he's talking to Rome when he writes in Romans that there are laws in place that govern our relationships. What did those laws look like? 
Well, we have assumed, I had assumed, maybe you didn't, I had assumed that Roman laws looked a lot like our laws. Well, of course, the oldest child inherited everything. Well, of course, the woman must have been the property of the man for, for him to do with whatever he wanted. And I began to learn that's just not the way the Romans lived. So, so how did we get in the 1960s, in, in my formative years, how did we get to the point that we began to read Romans and Corinthians in these books in the struggles that we were having to come to grips with what for us had been trying a hundred years at least of very trying times when we're wrestling with what does it mean? We're the first nation in the world. If you don't know this, newsflash. We are the first nation in the world that essentially said to all nations and all races of the world, you are welcome to be here. We are the first nation that has ever done that. But you know what that does? That means that religion comes here, that culture comes here, those, those, those ways they think about life come here. And so we're sitting here trying to live next door to people, trying to work next to people. Our kids are in school trying to learn together, and we're having to somehow meld all of these cultures together. This is a hundred years where we have been struggling with what does it mean that we all get to be individuals, independent, free, but somehow live under the same laws. Well, it was pretty easy uh, for me to be taught when I was in my teenage years in the 70s, this order of life that says, well, it's just all about authority and it's all about hierarchy and everything from marriage to government and all the, and, and, and we just go down and hire. The problem with that is the Romans had no such law of inheritance. The Romans had no such law of authority. And, and so the more I learned, the more confused I got. The oldest child in Roman law did not immediately inherit. As a matter of fact, that was something that came along more in the Middle Ages. And it was because we started having problems. Most parents in the Roman culture, in the Greek culture, in, in all of that culture, most parents divided their property up between all their children. And everybody, sons and daughters alike, would get their fair share. Wow, that would have been nice for somebody to have told me when I was 15 years of age and trying to figure out what's authority and what's life supposed to look like. It wasn't until the Middle Ages that we began to see the problems in all of that. Because the problem is... If you're Charlemagne and you have conquered most of the known world and you are living by a Roman ideal that says, well, I've got seven kids. I guess I divide my empire that has been built up among seven children. Uh, unintended consequences. The children decided to kill each other for the other's property. And the world said, wow, that wasn't such a good idea, was it? 
That might work if you only have an IRA that you're dividing up among your kids and one of them gets to take a European vacation. But if you're dividing a nation up, that's not such a great idea, is it? And so the, the kings and the people that followed him said, whoa, whoa, we can't have this anymore. So they began to say, well, what do we do then? Well, we will just take the oldest child. And so the Middle Ages and this idea of authority and this idea of kingship that comes down and, and is inherited and passed down. Caesar didn't become the next Caesar because he was related to the previous Caesar. That's not the way the Romans operated. Do you begin to see the quandary that I'm discovering? The more I learn about the Roman culture, the more what I had been taught about, about Romans and Corinthians, it began to confuse me. Well, if the Romans weren't steep, why is Paul using this idea of husbands and wives and legally married and, and, you know, man is the head of the woman and Christ is the head of man and God is the head of Christ as if we have this hierarchy that's stretching down so that we know our place and how we're supposed to act. Well, there is an understanding that I never had. And the understanding that has been greatly clarified thanks to uh, the biblical coach that I have, I, I, I had knowledge of some of these things, but he was able to bring these things into real focus. Dr. Freemeyer, uh, he is my biblical coach. Every week, I spend time with a biblical coach, two hours. I still go to school every single week. And we were talking here in Romans and bringing Corinthians into this and having this conversation and he challenged me and he said, Tim, he said, tell me what you think this whole idea of the head means. Well, I had an answer for that because I had been taught, right? My, well, I said, it's obviously authority. It obviously has something to do with a hierarchy. Who's in charge? I understand that. I was in the military. Captain goes down, the lieutenant takes over. The lieutenant goes down, the sergeant takes over. The sergeant goes down, the private takes over. You want to be the highest ranking private because eventually the E1 lowest private's got to be the one to go out and do what you tell them to do. All right, you fight for rank. I get it. He said, Tim. He said, yeah, we've, we've got structures of authority. He said, in every family, in every culture, he said, even the Romans had structures of authority and there were laws. He said, but to simply stop at that, you are totally missing what Paul was trying to say to both the Romans and the Corinthians, the Romans and the Greeks that were living in this Roman culture. He said, let's back up a little bit and let's talk about what it means to be the head. I was like, great, finally, somebody is going to help me unravel some of these questions that I had. Because let's be honest, 
education had challenged my thoughts. But all it had done is create more questions. And so if I have more questions, but I don't have any answers, what's my default? Well, I just went back to what I was taught in the 70s, okay? I just went back to what I knew, all right? That's what I preached. That's what I lived. That's what I knew. He said, let's go back and talk about the head. He said, when Scripture in the Roman culture, when Paul is talking about the head, he said, this isn't about hierarchy and it's not about authority. He said, or at least, at the very least, it's not only about that. He said they certainly had the power structures. He said, I will not deny that. They were human as everybody else is, and they were trying to figure out how to make life work in in, uh, issues of authority. He said, but if you think that the only thing Paul is doing here is creating a power structure or an authority structure within the church, he said, you've totally missed Paul's point. And of course, I said, please help. And he said, the head in that Roman culture was considered the glory. He said, so, when you hear a phrase like, Christ is the head of man, he said, that is not Paul saying, Christ is your boss. It is saying, Christ is the glory of your life. He said that's exactly why God is the glory, the head of Christ. He said you can't hold together a belief in the Trinity and believe that there is some kind of authority structure in the Trinity. Well, God is more. Otherwise, it is not three in one. Otherwise, it is three descending God. So he challenged me on that and I was like, hmm. Okay, well, tell me more. He said, well, let's look at the scripture. And this is where he took me to 1 Corinthians. He said, let's look at this scripture. And he took me back and we began with chapter 11. And we began to read through that. I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. He had already fired that shot, right? The head of woman is man. He said, now what... Do you think that means? Well, the head of every woman is the man. Well, does that mean the boss of every woman is her husband? The head of every woman is whatever man is in the room? Are men higher in authority than women? My coach said, is that really what? I said, well, you know, it's kind of what I was taught. He said, but I want you to think about that. He said, number one, that's not the way the Roman culture lived. Women voted. We didn't discover women getting the vote. Women voted in Rome for the Senate. Women owned property all by themselves. Women inherited from their father. Well, I was blowing all my things out of... I just assumed that, you know, women, children, men... He said, Paul is saying, men, husbands, brothers, brothers, you don't have a sister, you're lucky. Yeah. 
but you're going to get married someday, right? You don't know? Well, when you do, understand this. You are to be the glory of your wife. That's what it means, men, to be the head. Doesn't mean we get to be the boss. You show me in history where that ever worked. It means, men, you might have lots of authority structures. Who gets to make decisions, how they get to make decisions, what the law says about it. You may have lots of authority structures in your marriage, in whatever nation you live in, but do not confuse those authority structures with the Word of God. Because what God is saying is, God the Father is the glory, the shining glory of Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus is the shining glory of man. Men, if you want to strive for something in life, be the shining glory. Alright, let me quickly tell you how, how the rest of this, uh, because Clayton has come up here and that's always my signal. Alright, You've done this long enough. But aren't you interested? Isn't this interesting? Don't say no. (laughs) What does it mean that a man is not supposed to pray with his head covered? There is a law. A Roman law. All right? That says... A man wears a hat or a head covering to show their glory. Now, Caesar, what did Caesar wear? The laurel leaf, right? Sometimes it was gold. That was the glory of Caesar's authority. Why did he wear it on his head? Because men were not supposed to go without a head covering. If you did, you know what that meant? It meant you were a slave. So, if you didn't want to wear a head covering, guys, in Rome of that day, easy enough. Anybody that sees you is going to assume you're a slave because you do not have a symbol of honor on your head. Not authority. Honor. Caesar had the honor of being Caesar. So a man would wear. So Paul says, when you go to pray, if you wear a symbol of the honor of this world on your head, what are you saying to God? You're saying to God that the honor of this world is greater than your glory. And so Paul says, men, when you go to pray, uncover your heads because there is no glory in your life that is greater than your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But what about women? Well, why shouldn't women? Because ladies, if you went with a hat, that means you were claimed. And if you walked around without a hat in culture, 
that meant you were available. So any man that saw you, any man that saw you, she's available. Marriage, take your pick. So what did women do? Well, if you were available, you didn't wear anything on your head. But if you wore something on your... And so we get the Catholic tradition of nuns wearing habits. Why? Because they are owned by God. Yeah. So Paul says to the ladies, now when you come in to pray, don't you dare. Right? You are under God. He is your glory. He is your honor. Yeah. Paul is talking to us. Yeah, come on up, Clay. Paul, and, and I'm going to say a prayer so the rest of the praise team can come up. Paul is talking about how is it that we honor God. Are all those other things going on? They're all a part of culture. We're going to have to deal with them. We're going to have to struggle with them. But do not confuse what it means. Husbands, you are the honor of your wives. Wives, you are the honor of your husbands. Parents, you are the honor of your children. And it should give new meaning to the Old Testament passage that says, children are to honor their mother and father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just pray that the more we learn and the more questions we have, the more deeply we will think and the more challenged we will allow ourselves to become. For this week, Lord, may we find ways in which we can be honor to each other, to our families, to our spouses, to our parents, to our community. Ultimately, Lord, how is it we can honor you? Amen.